Well, this uh, Old Testament reading that we have today is one of those texts where if you were to look at the history of it, it's, uh, it's quite uh, marked. People have paid attention to it, noted it, uh, argued over it, and we tend not to argue over this text from 1 Samuel today. But if you were to go back to the early modern period before and after the Protestant Reformation, you would see that it was central to all of the major arguments, both political and theological, around the true uh, authority and political power uh, of, of European realms. It was uh, also a key text in debates about the relationship between the church and the state, and it was, in fact, used interestingly enough, in part to justify our own denomination, the Anglican Church, when it split from papal authority, did so uh, in part because of how it understood the authority of kings, which it mined from passages like we just read today in 1 Samuel 8. And all of this is interesting to me and probably boring to most, but I think what should be interesting to all of us is the way that this text has basically lost all of its controversy. Nobody gets riled up about 1 Samuel chapter 8 anymore, at least not that I've heard of. And I think it's because at heart, I would guess that none of us cares that much about whether Israel should or should not have had a king. Furthermore, nobody really wants to serve anyone else other than themselves. And I think even with a continued interest, we've seen, in fact, a revival of interest in theological discussions about the kingdom of God and kingdom theology. Lots of talk about the kingdom, but there is very little talk about a king and what that might mean. I have to admit, I've never heard anyone claim that they wanted a king except for once. I was at a wedding and it was the reception after the beautiful big party, beautiful church. I was waiting in line to, to enter in, and I met the most normal-looking elderly gentleman. I knew who he was from a prominent and old Charleston family, and he somehow initiated a conversation around politics and also admitted to me that he was, in fact, a monarchist. And, of course, my jaw dropped. I am both a millennial and an American, so I did not see how this was possible the guy was just, simply put, he was a living antique. He was a living, breathing antique. And I had no clue what to do with him other than politely say, I don't think I've ever met a monarchist before. And I think it ended at that. So aside from that one guy at that one wedding, I don't think any of us actually expresses an interest in having a king. But to be sure, if we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 8, the issue was never about, in all of its varied discussions, all of its heat, all of the things surrounding uh, the drama of this text, the, the, the issue was never about whether Israel should have a king or not. It was about who the king should be. But it was never whether they should or should not have a king. It was always assumed. Why? Because a kingdom is nothing without a king. And that's, in fact, just what Jesus tells us in our gospel reading today. A kingdom that is divided unto itself cannot stand. And again, so the issue in 1 Samuel is not whether Israel should have a king, it's whether God should be their king or a human should be their king. And at this point in Israel's history, as you may know, they have come into a crossroads. In Genesis, they started out as a family 
they've moved from a family to a clan, from a clan to a series of tribes, from a series of tribes to what we would describe as a, a nation, a people, a whole uh, group, body of, of people who are no longer uh, a wandering series of tribes, but a stable uh, people that God has um, given a place. You might say that here Israel is becoming a true nation. And so they ask for a king like other kings, excuse me, like other nations. A king who could show other nations their strength and their legitimacy and their status in the world. And of course, God knows about kings of other nations, and so his response is to warn them. He tells Samuel, be clear about what it would mean if they have a king who is not me. He warns them, he goes, he tells them, he says, they'll take the things that you love the most from you. That's what kings will do. But again, I have to remind you, the issue is not kingship itself. Because scripture has been clear about that from the beginning. If you look back to Deuteronomy 17, another key passage, it's clear that God intended for Israel to have a king all along. Again, because Israel desired that his people would be a nation. Not a forgotten tribe, not an insignificant people group cast off into the realms of insignificance and libraries, but a living, breathing nation with a king. And so when God finally gives them exactly, excuse me, when God finally listens to them, tells them all of the warnings, and gives them what he wants, he does so in a great act of mercy. It is an act of mercy that they don't even understand. And I think that some of Israel's demands actually reveal to us a little bit about our own hearts and our own desires and our own proclivities. They desired the right thing. Again, I told you all about that. Deuteronomy 17. They were wanting the right thing, but they wanted it for the wrong reasons. Here's what I mean. One of the most exciting things that I get to do as a pastor is to uh, be with people when they decide to get married, and I do their premarital counseling, and it's always this uh, great pleasure. It's, it's a joy. You get to see people in the, um, you know, the very crux of their passion about being together. And one of the questions that I ask someone at the very beginning in premarital counseling is, because I think clarity is important, do you want to get married? Very, I think I've only heard yes. But then the next question that I'll ask is, why do you want to get married? You hear all sorts of things, all kinds of different answers. Some of them are beautiful and moving. Some of them are less so. And <laughs> they're all beautiful in their own way. Uh, but you'll hear things such as, we just have this special chemistry, so we had to get married. Or they'll so, say things like, I, I, I'm so in love, I, what else can I do? And those, again, beautiful answers as far as things go, but not always the best reason to get married. Love, as you know, is more complex than this. We can talk about reasons to get married later in a premarital counseling session. My point is, we often want right things for wrong reasons. And I think that is exactly what is going on with Israel. They want something right for the wrong reasons. They want something true and good and God-given 
but they want it for the wrong reason. And to me, one of the most powerful parts of this story is that they are given, again, in God's mercy, exactly what they want. We see this in our gospel reading. In our gospel reading, we, we, we are transported immediately into the beginning of the book of Mark, and Jesus shows up on the scene, and no one actually understands who he is. It's Mark chapter 3. It's at the very beginning. Crowds of people are flocking to him. His disciples think he's going out of his mind because he is not uh, caring for his own needs, but his, is simply giving himself away to the masses. His family is worried. The religious elite show up, and they recognize that this man, Jesus, does indeed have some kind of power, but they claim and challenge him. They say it's demonic. And Jesus keeps saying things all through at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that are indeed challenging. They're the kinds of things that only a king or a god would say. But the whole problem, the reason for the confusion is this god, this king, doesn't look like the king's from any other nations. And even though the religious elite are the ones who are most interested in discrediting the person of Jesus, they are the ones who, in fact, get it precisely right. They recognize that Jesus is indeed a threat to their authority. Why? Because he's a king. And they know it. Here's my point. Israel is given a human king, just like they wanted in 1 Samuel chapter 8. But he is a king like no other nations, because he is also, as you and I both know, God himself. He is both God, he is both a ruler, and he is the presence of the Almighty. He is both uh, the Almighty creator of everything, and he is also one who has taken human form. He is, in other words, a reverse tabernacle. He is God indwelling human flesh. He is the perfect judge that Israel never had. He is the law embodied. He's the ultimate king of Israel, and he is the fulfillment and culmination of all that has gone before. All of the leaders of Israel are wrapped up in this one person. They could not be who he is. And I have to say, there is so much that I would love to talk with y'all about Jesus being a king this morning. There are all kinds of implications. There are all books written about theologies of Jesus' divine kingship. There are books on the character of his kingship. But if you will just forgive me one minute, I'd like to settle on only one point. It's a very small and humble one. It's simply this. Do not miss the basic point that Jesus Christ is your king. He is your king. This is not a metaphor It's not a way of describing Jesus' divinity. It's not a nostalgic communication about God's character. It is a literal truth. I hate using that word. It's overused. This is a literal truth. Jesus Christ is your king, and he's my king, and he is the king of the world. You and me and everyone in this building sits under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And if there's only one thing you hear me say today, that's it. You have a king. It's Jesus And there are a few quick things, promise very quick, that I'd like to remind you uh, that I think are eminently practical about recognizing that Jesus is your king. And the first one is this. Again, all very simple, all very quick. The first one is simply this. Jesus, this kind of king, Jesus Christ, he is like other kings in that he does demand 
your allegiance. You might even say that it is a jealous allegiance. He wants you and nothing else. He wants your attention and it only. Just like other kings, you cannot, I think, fully and exclusively serve other rulers while you serve this one Jesus. He is your only king. This means that you can be part of a political party, you can belong to different social groups, you can be a groupie in a band or whatever, but you cannot define yourself exclusively and exhaustively by any single party or group or interest or defining set of character terms. Because you already serve someone else. Jesus Christ, your king. And this is precisely why Jesus' words for the religious elite of Israel are, are always so condemning. Sure, they had moral problems. Sure, they were unfaithful in a host of ways. But the main issue is they ultimately did not serve their king. They sought out their own interests. They sought out other powers and not the power of God. And they even taught others to say things like, we have no king but Caesar at the end of the Gospel of John. It's wrong. They should only have one king, Jesus. You can have no other kings define your allegiance. Now here's the second thing. Jesus is one who demands your allegiance, but he is also a, a remarkably gracious and forgiving king. You could even say a, a servant king, one who seeks you out. If you look at verse 28, the religious leaders that he came to save, they actually call him, you remember, demonic. They claim that he is from the, he, he is, they misunderstand him completely in that regard, and they call him something that you could only describe as blasphemous. And he tells them to their face that sins such as blasphemy can, in fact, be forgiven. Blasphemy, blasphemy in front of your king, that can be forgiven. He, of course, does warn them of the risk of continued and unrepentant sin, but he forgives. He claims that he can forgive the very ones he set out to save who nonetheless call him demonic. Isn't that amazing? He forgives them. He says he'll forgive them in their very presence. I think in, uh, in a beautiful way, our psalm today actually expresses all of this so well. If you look at verse 5 of our psalm, it says, All of the kings of the earth will praise you O oh Lord, in other words, God is almighty. Jesus is the one whom all kings will sit underneath. And then you jump to verse 7 and it says, Though the Lord be high, he cares for the lowly. You see, Jesus is a king who listens to us, who forgives us, who seeks us out, who knows our lowly condition, who knows our sins, and nonetheless loves us. He is a king who forgives and seeks you out. And what that means for you and me is simply this. You do not actually need to serve other kings. Because, here's why, because you already hold an exclusive audience with the one who holds all things together. You realize that. Jesus Christ is king. That means that you have an audience with the king of all things. Why would you ever want to serve any other king? No other king can do the things he can. And yet you have an ear. He wants to hear you. He longs to hear you. He seeks out the lowly. Three, third, final thing. I think that this King Jesus, the most remarkable thing about his kingly character is that it exceeds 
all other definitions and expectations uh, and descriptions. He's a king, again, like no other king in any nation. And I think of all of the depictions that I've heard in sermons, songs, things like that, one of the best ones I have ever heard, I've used this quote before from right here. It's from a Baptist pastor theologian, S.M. Lockridge, a famous preacher from the uh, 20th century. He writes this, and he said this. This is a sermon, really one of the best, I think, in the 20th century, to be perfectly honest. Lockridge says this, the Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? He continues, my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. Do you know him? Look, don't you want a king like that? That's the king of Jesus Christ. That's the real king. He is all of those things. And he is available for you and for me. He is both powerful and compassionate, all merciful and just. That's Jesus Christ, the true king. As we just sang, powers and dominions lay their glory at his feet. In closing, we today have entered into the season of uh, what we call ordinary time. It's really best understood as the the season after Pentecost. And if you look at the weeks, they're defined as X and X week after Pentecost. Today is the second week after Pentecost. Pentecost can be understood in a whole host of ways, the giving of the Spirit, the beginning of the church. But part of its significance is the way that it falls on the Jewish Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the the giving of the law. Marks the giving of the law. And so you remember in Acts, in the book of Acts, as the Spirit comes down, there are flames of fire dancing on people's heads, the people of God. And I think part of what that means is that at Pentecost, there is the giving of the very same law in the Old Testament, but in a new way. The fire dances over their heads and everyone can see. And this, in my mind, represents a new legal binding. It is a sort of new kingly seal of allegiance that marks the individual, you and me as a person. And so when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, as the priest says at the end of it, you are marked as Christ's own forever. What that means is that your allegiance belongs exclusively and totally to Jesus Christ because you are one with him. You belong to him. He's yours and you are his. He is your king. And so in this season of ordinary time, I would love us all to simply reflect on who or what your allegiances belong to. And if they do not belong to Jesus Christ, you must run away from them. But if you are compelled by this vision of the king who serves and dies for his people, 
I'd ask that in this ordinary time you find new ordinary ways to recommit your allegiances to the one who knows you, owns you, and bought you. He is your captain, he is your king, and he's worth serving today and tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.